Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. And maybe the most catastrophic typo of all time, he wrote back what was supposed to be illegitimate and accidentally wrote legitimate. Oh, no. And he clicked on it. Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online research. I'm Shannon Reagan, Needlestack producer and your host for today. And I'm Aubrey Byron, fellow Needlestack producer, and it's my turn to attempt at armchair expertise today. <laughs> so uh, this is our second iteration of the Needlestack book club. Cheers. Uh, we will be back to our regular programming in January with our regular hosts, Matt Ashburn and Jeff Phillips. We miss you, Matt and Jeff. But in the meantime, we wanted to provide our audience with some book recommendations just in time for the holidays. So Aubrey's going to take it away today. Yeah. So I read This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends by Nicole Perloff. Uh, this book, as the subhead suggests, is all about the cyber weapons arms race. Nicole's a cybersecurity and digital espionage reporter for the New York Times. Overall, this was a fascinating read. It's going to be a little less directly applicable to our OSINT crowd than the Bellingcat book was. That If you missed it last week, check out um, Shannon talking about that one. But it's definitely a great one to pick up, especially for our threat intelligence listeners. But um, also as just a citizen of the United States and or the world, it's, it's something worth reading. Okay. I'm in. Um, so Nicole Perloth, uh, Times reporter, uh, love a good journalist book. How did her background in journalism uh, make for the read? Yeah, I think the big advantage of reading a book by a journalist on a subject like this is that it can get pretty dry. And she's a great writer and has been on this beat for well over a decade. So she knows her stuff, but it's also very well written. It's also written for a lay audience, so there's not a ton of jargon. You can safely recommend this book to people outside of cybersecurity. She even mentions kind of being worried about getting flack for that, for oversimplifying. But um, in a later portion, she talks about why she wrote it in lay speak and why she thinks it's important for people to know that this exists. Um, yeah. And from a journalistic standpoint, the range of her sources are incredible. She talks to a lot of major players in the invention of this zero day market and decorated former CIA directors, uh, just the whole gamut of everybody involved. Uh, it sounds like a good read. This has been recommended to us uh, by 
a very <laughs> important person. Uh, so what is the zero day market and what is the role that, that it is playing and how the world will end? Yeah. So the zero day market is really kind of what the entire book is structured around. Um, she hops around in time, but the short history of this underground formerly secret industry is the main thread throughout. So for background, a zero day is, if you don't know, a software vulnerability that is unknown to the developers or vendors. And um, this market is based around hackers discovering these holes and vulnerabilities and then selling them to the highest bidder. Um, yikes. The C yeah. <laughs> the yikes moment. Every software developer's <laughs> nightmare. Um, and the CIA and NSA were really involved in creating this market because they wanted to be able to run offense on cyber weapons and mm -hmm. um, it was kind of their offensive strategy. But the book reveals that many of the same strategies are now being utilized against us by yeah, adversaries love, at this point. I love moments like this. It's like the call is coming from inside the house. Like the thing you created, that's that's the problem now. Yeah. And the um, invention of the market actually kind of enables governments that probably wouldn't have had the resources to, um, you know, basically have their own hackers discover these vulnerabilities now that they can just buy them off the shelf as is. Yeah. And she yeah. says that like virtually every nation state has their own stockpile of these zero yeah. days now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, leading us into the new arms race. Um, so obviously we have them and I guess everybody else has them. Like what is, how does that play out in adversarial um, instances or conflicts with these zero days? Yeah, so probably the most famous, um, almost certainly, and there's an entire chapter on it, is Stuxnet the uh, or Operation Olympic Games, which was a U.S. Um, worm that we developed with Israel to stop Iran's nuclear capacity from forming. And it exploited four zero-day flaws in Microsoft, and they infected the gas centrifuges, and it's pretty fascinating how it works if you they just ever so slightly change the frequency but not enough for the iranians to notice but it mm -hmm. still ruined a fifth of their nuclear capacity at the time yeah so it was really successful and it was all installed by usb drive well USB. um wait cheers to usb <laughs> yeah <laughs> well years later Basically, the exact same thing was done to us by Russians scattering USBs in the parking lot of an army base in the Middle East, and someone picked it up and plugged it in. Of and course. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> They're free I know. Candy. It does, if you've ever, like, rolled your eyes at a, you know, some sort of security training before, and you're like, who would do that? And you're like, oh, well, a lot Not of people, it turns out. <laughs> And there's even one of the exploits that the NSA wrote that is later obtained by Russia and used against the U.S. Mm -hmm. But not only that, but Stuxnet kind of became a rallying cry for recruitment of hackers in Iran. And they also began really heavily investing in cyber defense. It kind of showed the world what these zero days could do. And sort of when it became public that this had happened in 2010, 
and um, everybody started taking note. So this is such like an origin story now of like, you know, what cyber weapons can do as Stuxnet. Like I think, you know, the cybersecurity community is obviously really familiar with it. Um, you know, it even obviously made national headlines because of the uh, geopolitical conflict around it. But I think like the importance of what it sounds like this book and other, you know, getting these stories out there is that if you're not really paying attention, you don't really understand the lengths to which these these cyber weapons go and the impact that they can have on the real world uh, because everything is so connected digitally now. So we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. So I know in the beginning you mentioned that this focused, you know, more would be more of interest to cybersecurity on audiences and threat intelligence crowd. Um, but as a lot of our audience might be, you know, more in the OSINT and online research sphere, are there examples where, you know, open source has led to the discovery of these weapons, the defense against them, who works on them, any of that type of thing? She goes a lot into the NSA and Snowden leaks, um, since that's a big part of who is stockpiling these exploits. But mm -hmm. there's a whole section actually about how both the NSA and CIA started using personal online data to find the roles of and recruit well-placed people within the tech companies they wanted to infiltrate. Mm -hmm. um, and so they just use social media to both vet and to rule out potential recruits due to their habits, um, such as addiction, gambling, or even just personal risk factors like having an affair um, mm -hmm. because they'd be more vulnerable to either being exploited or becoming a double agent. And there's a bit about this whole Snowden leak actually where she's interviewing a former NSA analyst and he kind of chuckles and is like, yeah, Snowden didn't even have that high of a clearance rating. He actually didn't know the full capabilities of the NSA because he was lower level. What a, what a mean girl's response from uh, an NSA analyst. And he wore a ponytail twice he, a week. Oh my God. He, he didn't sit with us. So speaking of mean girls, um, social media plays a huge role. Um, you talked about the NSA's use of it in terms of recruitment. Uh, you know, are there other instances where, you know, in operations that social media or other, you know, online sites, forums, dating sites, whatever would uh, be used in this type of work? Yeah, because of um, when we're talking about, which is a little bit like early days of social media, there's a whole section about when Facebook came online and how it was just like a Christmas gift to the CIA. Uh, their official program is called Snacks, Social Network Analysis Collaboration Knowledge Services. And um, I'm going to assume that that was named before the popularized slang term. <laughs> but it's who a knows? Snack of an operation. <laughs> But, you know, suddenly there's Russian oligarchs uploading where they're vacationing. There's, mm. you know, uh, jihad fundamentalists, like, posting their manifestos online. Things that would take a lot of traditional sources, time and investment to find are just being willfully posted online. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the Bellingcat book, I think, gets into this bias as well. That it's like, because it's open source, there's some sort of... I would say distrust, but it's also just distaste. Like, oh, I didn't have some like cool spy story to go along with like getting this information. Like somebody just Googled it or got on their Facebook page, like ugh, eh. that it's not, it doesn't have the cool factor, but it kind of does. Like, I think especially because 
it's been so ignored uh, in favor of these other like old school or traditional intelligence collection methods. Yeah. And, you know, taking your resources and spending years uncovering something that they're just going to give you. Yeah. Why Thanks, not? Guys. Yeah. Right. Thanks, oligarchs. <laughs> but yeah, the it gets into some pretty dark stuff as well. There's um, analysts that get caught using some of those techniques to spy on their exes. Hmm. It even jokingly is named Lovent, you know, after like uh-huh. Sigant and <laughs> yeah, which obviously it's happening frequently enough to earn a name. To get a nickname. Yeah, that's dark. That is dark. Yeah. But um, that kind of example underscores sort of one of the issues that a lot of people take with the zero day market is you can't control how this is going to be used. It follows a lot of analysts throughout the book and some end up going to start their own firms just because you can make more money as a contractor, they realized. Mm -hmm. Um, Some work for foreign governments eventually and others become advocates who oppose zero days. Uh, There's a chapter about an analyst who goes to work for the United Arab Emirates and he immediately becomes concerned with how the work is being used. And um, this is the same time that the NSO rolled out Pegasus, um, which can be used remotely. And Nicole Perlas sits down for several interviews with an Emirati's activist who was released from jail because of international pressure. But he's released from jail and then immediately starts getting like hacked, followed, his passport is taken, money taken. Not only he's being hacked, but his wife's phone. And in a particularly chilling note, even his baby monitor is bugged, which just, yeah, Yeah. sends chills down your spine. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're just like over time these exploits as they become used by other nations and in ways that even, even the way the CIA is using them makes some of their own analysts uncomfortable. It just, it it grows a lot of um, distrust for the market. So with that distrust and perception of zero days, like where does the market go now? Is it, is it still as popular as it once was? Is it finding new customers yeah so it's definitely still being used especially worldwide um it became public and so there was a lot of pressure to respond from the federal government and so they kind of develop they're sort of forced to develop or they announced that they're developing a new policy that a lot of them are supposedly being turned over to be patched but they're only going to keep you know the most important for national security Exploit the ones file, really, but we, you know, there's yeah. no, yeah, there's no <laughs> real really, transparency really like. about who's making those decisions. But supposedly, there's a checklist um, mm-hmm. to only keep the most crucial, and the rest are supposed to be given to the vendors to alert them. Yeah, Project Zero is started to try to mitigate some of these exploits, and. Um, And that's because many of them, even Stuxnet back in the day, but especially modern ones, they actually rely on a string of vulnerabilities and holes. And Mm -hmm. so if you can take down one, it actually has a domino effect. And then then the attack will work. With all the the 
nations involved in the trade right now, what, how is the U.S. assessing the risk of uh, these sorts of cyber weapons? Is there any barometer of uh, what this is and maybe compared to physical risk? The takeaway of the book is kind of that she understands why we need offensive measures. But if we're going to play with fire, we need to be a lot better about our defense. Mm -hmm. There's a whole section near the end that just focuses on the vulnerabilities of our power grid and how dire it is. And that's something that kind of a lot of people have been screaming from the rooftops about for quite a few years. Ted Koppel has an entire book called Lights Out that is just about the fact that our power grid could be so easily attacked. Mm -hmm. People at the DHS that she ends up interviewing actually say they came to her um, to a journalist because their higher ups just keep ignoring the problem. And so it was specifically to try to light a fire under them. And um, it's not just that our grid is vulnerable and, but like every industry depends on power. So Mm -hmm. it's also how difficult it would be to repair depending on the scale of an attack. It could take months, even years to get power Mm -hmm. back if we were attacked in a major way. So and um, I'm just this. This is what happens to my voice when I think about the vulnerability of the power just grid. Really sitting in my cold office with the heat on, thinking, "Don't like it." And there have been attacks specifically on smaller cities in the U.S. Mm-hmm. in ransomware, um, where they've cut off or you know taken over the water supply and said, "You yeah. have to pay us to get it back." Yeah, I think, you know, that this has obviously, you know, been proven in Ukraine and and other places. Um, And there's been, you know, the hint of it like happening here and the testing of it. I think that's what's so creepy. It's that it's just adversaries are toying with, can we do this? Yes, we can do. we'll, We'll save it until we really, you know, need to use it, which, you know, is kind of the nature of zero days, too. So, there's yeah there's actually a section where she talks about the russians got inside one of our nuclear power plants and they didn't do anything they were just yeah, there just, checking, just looking and around. we knew we, they were there and there's something just very eerie about that yeah <laughs> like yeah, sure. almost not doing it is just creepy <laughs> yeah the how of how they do this is you know very interesting does she get into you know the tools and tactics of this trade Yeah, a lot of it's software specific. And so a little more technical, um, not really particularly applicable for online research. But at one point, she does talk about the DNC WikiLeaks hack. And um, one of the first things that analysts did was inspect the metadata to discover that the emails had been routed through Russia. So pretty quickly, they could pinpoint who was behind it. And we have an entire blog right now on image metadata and just even the most simple tools can actually be pretty powerful. Yeah. Follow the metadata. Also for our sock crowd, <laughs> the I knew that the hack came from a phishing link. What I didn't know is that it actually had been flagged by the user and only to have it sent through their network security and And maybe the most catastrophic typo of all time, he wrote back what was supposed to be illegitimate and accidentally wrote legitimate. Oh, no. And he clicked on it. 
So, you know, maybe be very clear with your users. It's just completely avoidable. Well, we've we've covered a lot here, including the importance of proofreading. (laughs) Are there any any thoughts you have on the book that you want to use to wrap up? Yeah, she just has some really great anecdotes about being a woman walking into these very technical male-dominated spaces that are kind Mm -hmm. of fun to read. There's a lot of characters within this that she interviews. You know, um, she has descriptions of one of her sources and his cowboy boots. There's a point where this hacking conference at this point knows that she's writing a book and they keep trying to revoke her invitation and she keeps refusing (laughs) to let them. It just shows up anyway, to which they're very annoyed and make her wear a bright green glow stick, basically to symbolize that no one should talk to her. Don't touch her. She's radioactive. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But she does end up talking to a hacker there. And she always asks, like, do you sell to adversarial nations or other brokers? And he says no, but it's not out of morality, but because he doesn't want to be killed. Um, Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And he goes on to compare being a hacker, at least of his caliber right now, to being a nuclear physicist in the 1930s, which Mm. I thought just really struck me kind of for where we're at, that, you know, basically the next great weapons will be cyber. That is the forefront of destruction. So that's something... (laughs) unsettling to leave you with to think about yeah no let's end on a light note (laughs) the forefront of destruction oh good all right well thanks i guess for telling me i'm not sure this is a cozy read unless your anxiety keeps you warm but it's worth yeah it might raise your blood pressure (laughs) thank you aubrey for telling me about this is how they tell me the world ends by nicole perloff sounds like a great great read Uh, To our listeners, if you liked what you heard today, you can find more info about the episode, including transcripts, video recordings, uh, and podcast streams on our website at authenticate.com slash needlestack. That's authentic with the number eight.com slash needlestack. You can find us and follow us on Twitter at needlestackpod. And we will be back in January with your regularly scheduled programming and regular hosts, Matt and Jeff. We look forward to seeing you then. Happy holidays and goodbye. (laughs) 